Hello and welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast, a podcast for anyone who's interested in moving education forward. I'm Brendan O'Leary and I'll be joined in today's episode by my co-host, this spectacular Robert McLeod. In today's episode, we have a further chat with Dr. Brad Kirshner. Brad is a school leader and educational theorist. He's currently head of the early school at Carolina Friends School in Durham, North Carolina. He has an MA in philosophy of religions and a PhD in education. His book, Understanding Educational Complexity, is available for pre-order and out in December. Link in the description. In the talk today, we build on the strands from our first conversation and dig deeper into how we can create a developmentally minded school in both culture and practice. We talk on the kind of relationships we want to be part of and how we can embody our values in a world of standardized testing. Before listening today, if you've not already listened to episode 50 of Reinventing Education, we suggest that you check that out first to get an overview of some of the ideas we're going to be talking about. It might also be helpful to check out our first discussion with Brad a few weeks back in episode 55. Well, we hope what you hear today is interesting and engaging and enjoyable. Feel free to contact us with questions and feedback at reinventingeducationpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter. Enjoy. I thought your conversation last time was excellent. And when we did our review of it, it, we were just starting to make sense of someone who'd come in in a really interesting other direction from us. And we'd been quite analytical with how, how we have tried to approach this idea of building a cultural culture of development but I was interested to hear one of your comments Brad was that quite a few people who listen wanted a little bit more clarity so I think I want to spend maybe start there or spend a little bit of time on unpicking for someone who hasn't watched a bunch of your videos or listened to our episode 50 overview yeah yeah and my sense was that last time we dove into really getting a feel for an unpacking some of the relational dynamics that come up and having this background of people coming from different perspectives. And there's these different, there's these different cultures sort of in the background. And you all have elucidated what those cultures are, traditional, mainstream, progressive. And then those, those connect to broad categories of sort of cultural codes, which is what we could call them, which are often referred to as traditional, modern, postmodern. So I feel like our conversation was within that context of thinking about these different perspectives and these different cultures, and then how to relate to diversity, perspectival diversity within different cultures, right? So how would you relate to traditional? How do you relate to mainstream? How do you relate to progressive? Coming from what we're calling a post-progressive perspective, which sees that terrain, which sees those differences, which has some sense of what those differences are, and how do you be a skillful actor in different contexts. So I, I feel like that was that was a really rich discussion, but a lot of that background knowledge was sort of taken for granted. And I think yeah. people don't necessarily know what we're referring to if they haven't listened to all of your podcasts. And also I think it'd be important to point out, you know, the categories that you all are using, traditional schools, mainstream schools, and progressive schools, those correspond to big categories that I mentioned, traditional, modern, postmodern, and sort of unpacking what, what that even means, what's that referring to, and then really what is the relationship between cultural collective categorizations like that and individual perspectives, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack in terms of we can get fuzzy going back and forth talking about collective categories and culture categories and like worldview, sort of social imaginary um, and culture-like views. 
and then talking about individuals and and a lot mm. of people get too sloppy there because you you can't really talk about an individual the way that you can talk about a group. So I think all that would be worth unpacking, really looking at individual development, looking at the, what those categories of groups are referring to and what's the relationship between them and like making maybe more analytical distinctions to sort of clarify mm. that terrain and then try to pinpoint that way of being in the world that would make use of that information or those ideas in the best possible way to support the growth and learning of individuals of teachers, of students, and of schools, right? And of society. What do you think's the best way into that? So maybe, Brad, like some of the people who spoke to you and said like, yeah, some of that was a bit over my head and maybe would benefit from those distinctions you just laid out of the difference between individual development, the difference between code or sort of like cultural realities or norms. What is that like my mind was trying to go, is there a a helpful metaphor, a helpful like visualization to to draw those distinctions or well, (laughs) I think having some sense of history is important too. Because if we were to dive into even just thinking about the relationship between psychology and education too is another one. Like there's there's understanding psychology, there's understanding individual development, and then there's understanding what's happening in schools. And the relationship there and like why it has played out the way it has and the sort of history of how things have played out in societies and in schooling helps to give a sort of historical context to how things are unfolding collectively. And I, I think it's important because one of the, I think something that we sort of don't acknowledge enough as individuals is how much we're influenced by, by our cultures, by our societies, by our experience. I mean, we still have this notion of individualism and we like to think of ourselves as individuals. And we don't like to think about how every word and every thought that we have is literally the product of the social milieu and all our experience, you know, channeled through our unique being. But it still is. We, I didn't make up these words and I didn't invent all these thoughts. I'm totally influenced. Um, so seeing how influence happens over time. So even just to think about, even just to think about modernity, like modernity as a construct, as an idea and how different aspects of reductionism and materialism and behaviorism and scientism, like there's there's ways of being in the world that have really dominated um, the West and really globally now over the past hundreds of years and how big of an impact that has had on us, right? So we, like we're all living in this modern world system, which is capitalist and which is very Um, reductionist and materialist, right? And that has had a big influence on how we understand psychology, how we understand schooling. So that's like one big category is like thinking about modernity and thinking about those, those reductionisms and how that's played out in education. And then the response to that, like, so like post-modernity is the sort of critique of that dominant worldview that has really tried to reduce reality to sort of a linear understanding that can be reduced to materialism and science and like this is the way it is and sort of rational linear thinking. So there's been a cultural reaction to that. And a lot of the language games and perspectives that have emerged culturally over the last hundreds of years have been a result of conflict and sort of tension between these different tendencies, right? And then you have the sort of pre-modern traditional worldview still trying to hold on to some sense of religiosity and meaning and purpose that's grounded in like a coherent narrative structure that's not overwhelmed by the sort of reductionism and materialism 
and in some ways, lack of sacredness and lack of religiosity of the modern worldview. So those are just some of the broader tensions that we're all kind of living in. As an entryway into understanding psychology, we could talk about how the sort of modern worldview has influenced our understanding of psychology and try to point to what a better understanding of psychology would be to kind of look at how, how, how should we understand the individual in the context of a school in the broader context of these larger sort of dominant narratives that are influencing us mostly unconsciously. I'd be really interested to, to begin there. Yes, because yeah. it's like, I, I think, so one thing to think about just, okay, so just think about psychology, like how do we understand the person, right? Our, our, our views and the, the, the sort of dominant ways of understanding people and understanding children and understanding education, like I said, have been very influenced by a sort of behaviorist, materialist, reductionist orientation, where we're trying to isolate and quantify things and looking at things very causally, like if-then relationships and linear relationships, right? These are some of, some of the bedrock foundational conceptual categories of modernity are actually influencing how we understand the human being. So that led to things like psychometric testing. And actually, you know, people don't understand the history of testing really came through the military and having a lot of pressure to sort people into different roles within the military. And then that kind of got transplanted into schooling and in the sort of industrial age economy. So this is another tangent of how much we're influenced by our economic structures. We don't really think about the dominant modes of, of economics completely influence our modes of education and our ways of even thinking about what it is to be a human being and our outlets for agency, right? So within the industrial age, through a sort of military uh, logic, we created psychometric testing and IQ tests to sort and categorize people, right? And it was very explicit. It, it was very clear that the intention was to sort and categorize people. The intention was not the fulfillment and self-actualization of all children. That was actually not the intention when industrial schooling began. So we're still kind of stuck with that legacy. And the last you know, couple hundred years, many people no longer see it that way, but we're actually still in the systems and the structures that were created with that very reductionist, modernist, materialist logic. So uh, another aspect of that is capitalism and economics and how one thing that has stayed a part of our educational system is still economic pressures focused on getting jobs, still focused on sorting people in one way or the other, and then also still stuck in quantitative modes of reasoning and thinking. So again, on part of the sort of modernist social imaginary or collective imaginary way, just way of thinking about what ration, what, what, what's rational and what's logical is wanting to reduce things, be able to quantify them so that we can compare them, right? And schools are still, whether you're traditional, mainstream, or progressive, whatever your sort of way of thinking is, whatever your values are, you're still kind of stuck in this world where that's the dominant way of comparison and of, and of, and of creating and comparing social value, right? So we're, we're stuck in this very reductive mode where we're, we're wanting to quantify things, we're wanting to put numbers on things, we're wanting to be able to compare them, but we have to be able to see that's a very limited worldview. And we're actually at a point in our sort of social evolution as a species right now, where we can look at that. We can look at that modern world system, that modern logic, modern logic and step out of it and think about other ways of being in the world and other ways of constructing educational environments that are not beholden to the limits 
of those very limited ways of thinking about quantifying educational value, comparing people, the goals of education being oriented toward very limited conceptions of jobs that are available, right? All these things are in the background. And now we're wanting to break out of it and think about a new way of being in the world and to create a new economic system. So that allows us to think about psychology in a new way. So if we were to not be limited by that really reductive materialist quantified notion of psychometric testing and sort of judging people based on things like IQ tests or standardized tests, how do we break out of that, right? That's a really important question for us as educators. So we see that we have this need for a meta-psychology, right? We, we have this need to really see that there are these different ways of understanding people and we need to take a broader view and we need to have a more process-oriented view where really we see the goal of learning is ongoing learning and deepening learning itself. And really having this process-oriented view for everyone allows us to actually tune into the growth-oriented, development-oriented aims and ideals and intentions of education. And we can start to see that this whole reductive materialist way of looking at people, it's what you can think of as, as sort of a third-person view on things, turning people into objects. But the reality of humanity and psychology is that we have, we have first-person experience, right? That's our sort of phenomenology, our, our, our attention, our consciousness, our will, the sort of phases that we go through, the states that we have as people. These are really important and need to be included in our meta-psychology and how we understand people. And we also have this notion of personality, values, emotions, the way that we relate to people, the sort of second-person relational aspect of who we are. So all of that needs to be included and how we understand people. So that's another thing when we're talking about psychological development, we don't want to get stuck into just looking at the skills and capacities and stages that people go through. Those are important, but we also don't want to lose sight of the sort of relational, emotional, imaginal qualities of being a person. And even just like figuring out who you are and like your uniqueness, like losing sight that every person really is this unique, special person on their journey. And leaving space for that in our conception of what it is to be a human being and not reducing people to their skills and capacity and capacities and developmental stages. And then also leaving space for people's just first person experience and the ability of transcendence and to experience different states of being that ultimately are what give meaning to our lives, right? So any sense we have of psychology has to include all these different perspectives of what it is to be a human. And we have to be able to see that the tendency has been to forget about most of that and to really focus in on the sort of objectified third person descriptive objectifying ways of looking at people. So when we talk about development, we, we need to sort of keep that, keep that in mind and keep in mind that there's just different ways of knowing, right? So a, another thing too, we've gotten locked into thinking of knowledge and learning in terms of propositional knowledge, like facts, like, you know, the more input we have, the more information we have, then we learn, then we regurgitate that information. And then we equate that with things like intelligence and capacity. And that leads to what kind of jobs people get and how much money they make. But there's, that's just one really limited kind of knowing, right? So you could call that propositional knowledge or knowing where you, you just know this proposition to be true. This is a fact, but there's also procedural knowing, right? There's knowing how to do things like the procedure of doing something and knowing how to do something in an embodied way 
it's a whole different kind of being in the world, knowing how to make things, right? Knowing how to do things relationally with your body and with other people. There's perspectival knowing, right? So there's having different perspectives on things, which is different than just having knowledge about things. And then there's participatory knowing, right? So there's how do you how do you know how to relate to other people and communicate and be in relationship? So these, these four different ways of knowing are things that um, John Dravecki talks about in his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series, which I, I think is a really helpful reframing of, again, we're just looking for ways to open up the box and see how we've had really limited views of how we understand psychology, how we understand people. Those really limited views have been influenced by huge macroscopic social forces having to do with economics and having to do with social structures like the military and having to do with just actually the scientific revolution and the sort of the grooves that got laid down from the European enlightenment and the scientific revolution and how we kind of got stuck and limited in those in those patterns. So we're trying to open up and think about what how can we think about people and psychology and include more so that when we're thinking about education, we have this broader understanding of all that's involved in being a human and what we need to really account for in the experience of people, right? So you can't reduce things to test scores. You can't reduce things to stages. You have to be, you have to find a way to account for how are people experiencing their relationships? How are people understanding themselves and having their self-concept developed by their educational environment? How are they not just developing propositional knowledge and facts, but also their procedural knowledge, developing the complexity of their perspectives, and also learning how to participate in reality with other people in more and more complex ways. So that's, that's, sort, of, that's sort of one way of telling a story about the background, some of the big background sort of concepts that I think have, should inform educational psychology. So for me, I wonder if we can now take what you've just said, those struggles of being bound to the modernist kind of mainstream approach to education, the reductionism. And if you can sh maybe give us a glimpse on the ground level of what things look like maybe in your school, in your ideal of a classroom, what a day, a week, month, a year, how those struggles, negotiations, finding new ways of doing things plays out. I don't know if this is necessarily needed from our side, but one of the things Brendan and I have often talked about is this idea that you worded the same thing just in different words, as we've said, the kind of mainstream approach to school is still very much the center of gravity because it's like, great, go off, be a progressive school, do whatever you want to do. But the first hurdle you have to jump is we need those reduced test scores from you for the district at the end of the year. So whatever you do, great. As long as we still have this. And it's like, that ends up being the like, yeah, the first hurdle yeah. that can't be overcome by a lot of people who try to move beyond this, the idea that we're still like bound in this sort of world. So I'm kind of curious if there are examples from your schools that you've been involved with that have made steps beyond that, possibly integrating the needs of that mainstream modernist view. But if you've also found new ways to say, no, we're also leaving this part of that behind. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And we can get into concrete ways to sort of move beyond and transcend that sort of dominant reductive orientation toward narrowing what is valuable and narrowing what the sort of goals and aims of, of education are, which for many people are getting grades and going to college and making money, right? So that that's what we're trying to break out of. And yet we're in it. So you're right. So, so, so there's this notion of transcend and include 
which when we're looking developmentally, both individually and collectively, is a meaningful concept. Because really what you're saying is if you're going to transcend the limits of those sort of modern assumptions and aims and structures, you have to find a way to still include the benefits of them and the good things about them and the essential things about them and actually still be able to outcompete and and sort of show that you can go through that and beyond that. It's not just, uh, well, our children are not going to have jobs. We're going to educate kids and then they'll all be homeless. Like that, that's obviously not the goal, right? So you have to find a way to still be in the world, even if you're not limited by it. And I would say concretely, I mean, the school I work at now is a great example of a progressive school that is, again, sort of a, an outgrowth of this larger cultural social phenomenon of what we could call postmodernity. So we could see sort of subcultures and individuals growing into perspectives that critique modernity that see the problems with some of the things that I'm pointing to about the modern structure and then create criticisms of that and try to find new ways of being and create sort of progressive culture and subculture. And some schools are definitely in that subculture of progressive values where they are very critical of that. And some concrete changes we've made, like for instance, we don't have grades. So we rely on narrative feedback and we really are trying to align ourselves again with research-based practice. So you have to sort of pull in the scientific research, pull in the best of modern sense-making to sort of justify the fact that actually the research says that grades can be really detrimental to motivation and to learning. And the irony is that many of the basic assumptions of how to do schooling are not research-based and they're actually not supported by the scientific literature. So, but a big part of our job as a progressive school that does not rely on letter grades, we rely on rich narrative feedback. We rely on conferences with students and parents. We rely on just ongoing formative assessments that are much more in line with just this, again, this process-oriented view of ongoing learning. But what we find year after year after year is families for whom that is really unusual and weird and are so habituated to the conventions of grades and of standardization and of standardized tests that every year we have to try to explain to make sense in this background modernist reductionist quantified um, sort of worldview, like what does it actually look like to move beyond that and to let that go? Like what do you negate and what do you preserve, right? Which is again, a really developmental dialectical principle. Every step that you move beyond the previous sort of structure individually or collectively, you have to negate some things, but also preserve some things, right? Transcend and include. So there are things about the modern world system and modern education and mainstream education that we preserve. And it's still, it's still wanting to have really high expectations for literacy, for numeracy, for scientific engagement, like keeping all the best of those, of those modern ideals and those scientific ideals and those academic and scholarly ideals, but negating the structures that actually inhibit that, which is hyper-focus on grading or, or, or the standardization of assessment, right? So what we want to bring in is a sort of more progressive postmodern value of individual, seeing people as individuals and allowing a sort of individualized approach to education too. So that's, that, 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 that's another big part of what's become the dominant norm in modern schooling is standardization. And I, that, that's often where I lead with parents when I'm trying to explain to someone who's kind of coming in with a lot 
of mainstream presuppositions about what school is supposed to look like. A good place to start is often just looking at the problems of standardization, because especially from a parent point of view, you know, and you want to believe that your child is unique and special. And if you have more than one child, you can see they are really different. Like uh, that's a great lesson for parents to just get is how unique and different each child is. And you see that in siblings very clearly. So how do we honor that, right? How do we include that in our meta psychology, that individuality, and not fall into standardization? So for instance, that's a good first step as a school, no standardized testing, period, you know, the only ones that we as a school have to still include in our transcendence are things like the SAT and the ACT to make sure that our children are able to get into the colleges that they want to if they want to go to college. And that is, again, that's part of that modern world system that still is in place, but it's actually loosening. And what we're actually seeing over the last 10, 20 years is more and more universities actually being impressed by and drawn to our our less standardized and less grade-oriented way of assessing students. And they're really forced to look more closely at the student writing and at the teacher narratives to really get a sense of who this unique person is. And we have found that it is, it, is not, it is not prohibitory and it is not in any way something that counts against them as they're looking to succeed in this modern postmodern world, as they're looking to go to university. Things like not having grades are not going to hold you back. So that, that's, that's just a good simple example of like, we can let go of some of these things. And more and more schools, I think, will and should move into less standardized and less quantified grading and assessment. Yeah, it's a little bit of a a leap of faith because as you say, right at the end of the schooling, once the kids hit 17, 18, they're locked into a system still. And and we've spoken to uh, an alternative university in Romania who's tried to lead with much more of a mentor-based program. But still, I think that's one of the harder problems. I teach primary and we've we've got a, a few years before we have to really start worrying about that end point how, how do you kind of mediate that when your kids get to about 17 18 and you know that that's on the horizon and you're kind of locked into it yeah well I think too part of the bigger picture is what by that point in their life what is their understanding of the world they're going into what is you know are they oriented toward being successful in that world and having a goal that's pretty narrow like wanting to make a lot of money which is a very still conventional and socially acceptable goal orientation and actually that ends up being the goal orientation and motivation for a lot of teenagers when they grow up in a reductive materialist modern mainstream culture Right. So but part of the shift is the self-understanding and the conception of the world that you're going into. If you grow up in a progressive postmodern subculture that has been actually critiquing and pushing against those modern tendencies, by and large, 17 and 18 year olds are at the point where they're able to really, to some degree, understand and see those critiques for themselves and not buy in. So actually already transcend the sort of modern goals and aims and to have a different orientation. So this is another really simple distinction that I make to families a lot is, you know, there's this distinction between having a conventional or post-conventional orientation, right? And we, we, we may have talked about this last time, I forget, but just having a conventional orientation, whatever your subculture or culture is, just accepting that and wanting to be successful within that system. So even the goal of getting a job and making money and being successful in society. That's a very conventional point of view. That's actually what we want to help 17 and 18 year olds critique and transcend 
and negate, right? So with that, that, that in itself, if, if that is your prime concern, in some ways you could say that you've actually failed educationally, or at least you haven't gone as far as you would ideally like to with that 17, 18 year old. Whereas if you have a 17, 18 year old who to some extent really sees there are deep systemic, economic, relational, justice oriented problems in society, their orientation is post-conventional and they want to change it and make it better. So they're more likely to be looking for some groove or niche where they can be of service in helping to actually up-level the operating system of society. And that is their prime directive. And that's what we need to ignite in our children. We need to be giving them consistent messages from primary school through high school, orienting them towards service and toward the ongoing betterment of society and toward finding creative and novel ways to actually help make things better, which is fundamentally completely different than tacitly, whether explicitly or implicitly, teaching our children that the whole reason they're in school is to be successful and and make money. So, I mean, the fact that that's even been the default goal orientation for a lot of schooling over the past 200 years, looked at from a postmodern progressive perspective, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy of human capacity. And we've really failed to to, uh, ignite the potential of children to take that post-conventional view. So if you're 17 and 18 year old, if their primary concern is making money and being successful and getting a job, that's valid. That's natural. It's common, but it's not ideal. And it's not what we necessarily want for our kids. So then we need to think about what do we need to do differently so that they're actually, they know as they make that transition and they cross that threshold beyond K-12 education, they should have some sense of the challenges ahead of them and what they're getting into, but also they should have the skills and capacities and complexity of thinking to be successful and to probably, and to hopefully be having that post-conventional orientation can actually help them be more successful and more skillful in navigating that sort of uh, more modernist terrain, which, which is still dominant in some ways, but is also a lot of things are shifting right now. So I think I think this sort of modern world system that we have taken for granted for the past hundred years, it's cracking up and it's breaking up in a lot of ways. Uh, the job market's going to continue to change radically. Economic system globally is going to continue to change radically. Our political systems are destabilizing. So there's a lot, that, that's a bigger part of our world picture too, in terms of just the, the chaos and instability of the near future is another thing that we need to be preparing our children for. And that, that's a whole nother thread we could follow, those sort of meta skills and capacities that children need to have to be able to manage a, a pretty chaotic and complex world where you cannot just get your degree, get your nine to five, clock in and clock out and have a white picket fence and, and raise a family. That's just not the world that they're, that, that's not the world they've been born into. You know, our, our, our parents lived in an interesting little bubble historically and the bubble's popping in a lot of ways. And that bubble is still really imprinted on us. Um, you were saying, you know, there's maybe that goal of I want to do school to go off, do well, get a good job and make money. What's interesting to me, although that's the positive spin on it, in my 10 years of teaching in three different countries in both the public and private sector, I've heard students say explicitly the actual, the converse of that from grades one through 12. I've heard students say, yeah, I'm afraid of not getting good marks and not getting a good job and being poor. Like it's actually the like the the like fear that's at the bottom of that worldview that's like 
organizing it. Now, I think the positive spin is the thing you hear often do well, you know, so you can go off, become all you can be, reach your highest levels of achievement within the system as it is defined, all these sorts of things. It sounds really obvious and almost like dystopian when you boil it down to a sentence or two that's kind of talking about the source code of like the kind of modern or mainstream school. I'm curious, being aware that we are saying we we at least see the benefit in the transition towards a more progressive approach. Do you articulate with students the specifics of what's at the base of a progressive view? So if at the core of the mainstream modern view, it's this kind of reductionist, do well, so you'll do really well later. What's the kind of like tail that's at the bottom of, of the progressive approach that we're at least attempting to move toward, in your words? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, because I would say that up to this point, for schools that sort of don't identify with traditional or mainstream culture or goals, and are what we are calling progressive, we're sort of resonating with this broader sort of postmodern emergence, that for the most part, that's not consciously held. I think from within that view, there's a lot of focus on what's wrong, right, with other people. What's wrong with the deplorables? What's wrong with conservatives? What's wrong with traditional mainstream approaches? What's wrong with standardized education? And it is this very critical orientation. And then we, we're what the sort of default, de facto, implied, tacit presuppositions are, we are creating an environment that is better, that is more conscious, right? Like, and we, we can talk about progressive education in a way that makes a strong argument for the ways that it is better. But I don't think there is generally a good um, self-awareness of, of, of sort of taking that view as an object in itself and being able to look at it, right? Because we're in it. So progressives at progressive schools and postmodern cultures are generally, that is their, that's the framework of their subjectivity and their intersubjectivity. So that that is the worldview that they're kind of taking for granted, which with with which they look at and critique and objectify other worldviews. So that's really getting into, to answer your question, you'd have to actually be able to take a post-postmodern or post-progressive view, right? So that, and that's one of the benefits of even our having this conversation is yeah, being able to see the sort of contours of how in many ways this progressive postmodern view is perhaps dialectically or perhaps just reactionary is a response to modernity, is a response to reductionism and materialism, is a response to standardization. There are some ways in which it's it's still derivative from modernity and still sort of an aspect of late modernity that's becoming critical, but it's not yet fully self-aware and it's not yet fully aware of the developmental space or field of human emergence within which these different worldviews emerge, right? So I think the move that we want to make and the move that we want to help progressive postmodern people make is to keep going, but to take, take that backward step and sort of look at some of the potential issues with, with that postmodern progressive worldview, see how it still is connected to the modern world and think about what that means and implies for human possibility, right? Because we don't want to get stuck in, and you can see this in, in like how it plays out in terms of battles around racism and social justice in, in, in some ways, in terms of like, we, we get stuck in this antithetical, reactionary, conflictual relationship with this, with this sort of modern world reality. And we want to find a way where we're able to hold, hold the whole picture more, where we can 
sort of have love and empathy for all these different perspectives and have that more developmental view as opposed to just right and wrong view, right? So I, I guess like what I'm saying is from the progressive postmodern view, it's, it's just this assumed rightness, like this view is right and good and those views are wrong and bad, but that's still binary and either or. So what we want to do is to see that, not, not necessarily, it's not necessarily about, you know, can we come up with a pithy phrase to describe the progressive view, but can we see that the relationship between progressive and mainstream is, is oppositional and binary and stuck in tensions that play out socially and politically in unproductive ways, right? And get out of that. So like, how do, how do we see that we're kind of stuck in, 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 these, in these conflicts, these mimetic conflicts, right? These, these different social cultural memes or mimetic structures and ways of thinking and believing and valuing. We're kind of stuck in opposition with each other and we don't wanna just be reactionary. We don't wanna be fighting against traditional or modern worldviews. We wanna actually have a more developmental oriented view that is holding everyone in empathy and seeing everyone's perspective as valid and always being oriented toward the next step of growth for whatever individual or group or society we're giving our attention to. So that's the sort of that's the sort of move that I think we need to make and I think conversations like this my hope is that somewhat abstract conversations like this can be helpful in that developmental process because we're even just learning to take these really big conceptual architectures as objects and as 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 objects of discourse and giving language to them and that allows us to sort of back up and see this developmental picture and, and then have to think about, well, where are we on that path? Where do we fit in in this picture? And how do we kind of keep, keep going and not get locked in? That's a great answer. And I think that kind of brings us to a, an idea that you brought up last time where one of our approaches at Reinventing Education is to be quite explicit about Maybe not the stage model in the sense of using all the terminology, but we have clear stages of uh, traditional mainstream progressive, and we talk about the values that underpin them, and they're they're heavily indebted to things like Frederick Lelou's stages of development and spiral dynamics stages. But part of what I guess your conversation last time was about having that either running in the background in your head and not having it explicit in conversation. And of course, it's going to be contextual. But to what extent in your conversations in your day to day school or in, in a wider context, are you are you being both informed by those stage models and being explicit in talking about them with the with the people you work with? Yeah, I would say I'm very informed by them. I mean, every day, all the time, it's sort of, I think one of the things of, you know, studying developmental psychology and, and some of these systems that, that you've named, in addition to others, it kind of becomes part of your operating system to sort of see the world and see people unfolding in this developmental space of emergence and kind of feeling into people in terms of their different frequencies and just sort of resonating with different aspects of, of what they're saying and just how they're being in the world. And I think part of the benefit and importance of that is that it allows you to have always in the background of your awareness, a context within which you're relating to people in a way that has some sense of how to resonate with them and how to connect with them based on your perception of where they're coming from, but then also having a sense of what would be productive for them and for this relationship. Like what's the next step? Right. Like if you have a sense, you know, that they 
are sort of coming from a abstract view where they can take one variable at a time, but they're not really seeing how different variables fit together, you can always point to like, oh, well, what about this, right? To kind of complexify their thinking a little bit. So I would say for me, it's always operating in the background, but very, very seldom is it made explicit, right? And that, that kind of comes down to this thing about just the value and importance and necessity of having different kinds of conversations at different times. And the, the value of the kind of conversation we're having is partly so precious because it's so rare, because there aren't that many social contexts within which really digging into this is meaningful and relevant and consciously wanted by multiple sides in an engagement. So like, this is a pretty precious kind of conversation. 99.999% of the time, even if we have some awareness of these things, it's just not what's going to be explicitly the subject of conversation. So, and that's one of the challenges of being an individual who's really trying to dive deep into understanding humanity and development individually and collectively. And the more and more you sort of learn and the more it's informing your worldview, allowing it, and this is a mistake that a lot of people make at the beginning, is almost wanting to talk about it too much, but then it doesn't actually resonate or land with people in the way you want it to. And it can just, it gets oversimplified and you end up oversimplifying and overly reducing the, the abstract ideas you're trying to share with people. And it, it, it often doesn't really work. And a sort of maturation process as individuals that we have to go through is to learn to really just be embodied and just be in relationship and to not make it explicit, but to have it skillfully and helpfully inform what you say and what you do. And again, and also letting go of this idea that, that you're going to be able to change other people, right? And that, that's one of the paradoxes of education. When you're in education, you're in the business of changing people and educating people and making them or helping them grow and change and develop. And, you know, you come up against this paradox of you really, especially when working with adults, but even with children, you can't force it. You can't push people into that different way of thinking. You have to learn the relational skills of, you know, validating, empathizing, you know, allowing their sort of defense mechanisms to release and relax and getting into the interpersonal qualities that actually allow space for emergence, right? So creating the conditions for emergence is very different than transmitting propositional knowledge, right? And that, that's another way that those different forms of knowing are really important. If, if this, if development was just propositional knowledge, if this was just information and we just had to tell people about the stages and then everyone would just get it and then everyone would evolve and develop, then I would just be out on the corner passing out pamphlets and have my little red book of development, you know, and then everyone would read it and we'd all be super complex thinkers, but that's just totally not how it works because it's not about propositional knowledge. It's about procedural knowledge of learning how to do this thing of working with people, participatory knowledge that cultivates perspectival knowing. So very implicit, very tacit, very in the background, but, and, and this is really what we, what I tried to focus on in my last conversation uh, is really embodying this post-progressive view is not about explaining things to people or critiquing post-modernity or progressive culture, but looking for opportunities to do that, right? So like my growing edge is when, when is a good opportunity to do that? What, when is there a conversation that you can actually see is getting mired in the sort of limits of a progressive or postmodern worldview? And what would be that question that you could ask? Or what would be that sort of alternative 
fact that you could add that would sort of force people to really think about what they're saying and thinking differently. And for me, that's the orientation to have is always looking for those moments, always looking for those really micro, those really micro opportunities of just like shifting things, you know, and, 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 and part of that has to do with breaking groupthink too. So last thing I'll say on that is just there, there is research that shows that if just one person speaks a truth that's different than a dominant narrative, it can really break the cycle of just groupthink, and it can really open up a space to broaden the group's thinking. Because what happens in a lot of schools and a lot of organizations and a lot of subcultures is there's just this strong, there's this strong just uh, orientation to just agree with each other and to identify with each other and to have some sort of groupthink, whether it's traditional, mainstream, or progressive, every group gets locked into that. And it's really hard to be that person who challenges it or goes against it or has a different point of view. So that's something that I personally struggle with. And I'm all often thinking about is I'm all, I'm often feeling like I'm not a part of that group think and just looking for that opportunity to say something or ask something that'll kind of open up a space to shift the conversation. And that that's the kind of skillful means that we need to, to cultivate as, as educators, as school leaders, and just as, as citizens. I'm trying to picture myself as someone who is listening to this and these ideas might still be new and like, oh, what would be an example of that? So I'm curious if we just have like a concrete example, I, I had an interesting one, a good friend of mine, who I would say, ha- has come out of the very progressive kind of education system. And it was interesting, because basically, they were just going through like, all of the heroes of history, like, oh, the women, you know, who fought to get the right for women to vote in Canada, they were actually horrible people, they were they were into this. And like, there was these allegations of racism and classism and all these things. And they're going through like almost generation by generation, like, no, all these people we celebrate for all these things that are good, for example, women's rights to vote, these kinds of things. It was like, no, but they're actually bad people. Like if you if we look back on it, and I just threw it like, and it was very spontaneous. Although we think we're doing the best work we possibly can, 100 years from now, why would somebody be singing in this cafe and say the exact same thing about us? Like, they were horrible people because blah, 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 by this new standard. And it was interesting because it just like opened up this whole new trajectory of the conversation where it felt like, oh, both of us are in very new territory. This isn't repeating something you've heard or a familiar conversation or kind of a collective group of talking points. It was like, oh, this is this is live. And then we sat there for like another two hours, just like, oh, yeah, like having this really interesting kind of chat. Have you guys had any other moments that you can share where it's like, oh, yeah, we kind of lifted up the veil on on that kind of worldview and that there is something kind of beyond this. Yeah, um, I, I, it's always just that in the moment, the question, I think for me, it, again, it depends on the context. So like at more mainstream schools that I've worked at, it was just, I often found myself being more explicit in my critique of standardized says, like sometimes just having to really say it because it's important to really share like for instance what the research says so sometimes you can be more explicit like i would really try to speak out against standardized testing and the problems with it but also in a a different way sometimes i think it's important to be even more subtle and to not name it so for instance in that same culture that's very mainstream i would also find that it's very high stress and very people are just really bogged down and people are really oriented in all the work that they have to do and there's pressure so I, th- I think part of that um, participatory knowledge and that relational knowledge is just even 
like sometimes it's just lightening the mood, right? It's just like how you carry yourself and being more playful, like actually modeling being playful, modeling lightheartedness can also break up um, patterns and habits of thinking and being in the world that I hope have an impact on people in sometimes subtle ways. Because if someone's not going to be open to a direct challenge, and if you can't, if in the context of a conversation, like you can't really think of that question or response that's really going to get somebody to be thought provoking. Sometimes one thing I play with is just, just trying to be different, just trying to be that outlier, be that, be that person who's kind of challenging the norms and the status quo and getting people to see and think differently, just by being differently, just by kind of acting differently. And just because also another thing to really know about education is we learn through imitation. We learn through copying other people. We learn through seeing what's normal through how other people are in the world. And so much of what we learn as children and as adults, again, it's not explicit. It's not even, it's not even verbal. It's nonverbal. And it, it's just, it's just like, how do you carry your body? How do you ask questions? Right? How do you talk? How do you hold? How do you keep something light? And I feel like that's that's another way of sort of opening up a space that is maybe not always clear where it's gonna lead, but but can be meaningful. And also just, I wanted to say what what you thought reminded me of somebody who I've been following lately. And her name is Aisha Akambi. And, and, and one thing I do too, I find that if there's a conversation or there's a very entrenched conversation or way of thinking about things, um, I'm often not the one to just be the authority. Or like, if, if I just share my different view or if I ask a question, oh, well, that's just Brad and, you know, whatever. But it's, I often have to try to find other people who are saying and thinking different things and then pointing people to different resources. So for instance, Aisha is, is somebody that I've sort of been pointing people to just, oh, what this person is saying is really interesting. And it's really offering a sort of post, post-modern, post-progressive view on, for instance, racism. Um, and one thing that, that she wrote recently, which I just found again, she says, if it's naive to think that you wouldn't have taken part in historical atrocities once considered normal if you embrace the trendy ideas of today, right? And that's kind of another way of saying what you were saying is if you're... If you're resonating with the dominant popular progressive view now, that actually is a pretty good sign that you would have resonated with the dominant popular views in the past, right? Because that there's still a sort of conventionality there. And that kind of that kind of gentle poke or that kind of hmm, like can make people think in a way that I think is really healthy and important, which is kind of similar to what you were saying. You know, maybe all three of us are called at times, provocateurs. I certainly think conversations trying to look for things that maybe are not quite being said or looking for another perspective on there. In most of what we do in our work as, as teachers, there's multiple perspectives and multiple answers. To. In most of them, there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance built in because we do have these competing systems going on in our schools. Wherever we work, there's some elements of the traditional mindset, the mainstream and progressive, and they're kind of all looking to have their voices heard and they're in 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 all of us as individuals too and so when i'm in a conversation just trying to keep my eyes open to does this kind of make sense if i look at it from all three perspectives especially if we're in a in a conversation as a staff with maybe 15 or 20 people and what are the multiple perspectives going on in the room and is are some of them do they feel like they're mutually exclusive and if they are do, do we want to look into that and say, like, 
we're saying that we should dedicate uh, more of our time to work preparation, for example. We talk about the three aims of school, and then there's a strong feeling in the room that we should dedicate more of our time to to self-development of the individual. How are we going to use our resources to do that? Trying to be open to that conversation, trying to see, as you said earlier, Brad, with, with love and empathy. Listen to all of those, and there may not be an easy answer in the moment, and so it's keeping the conversation going and knowing that I, maybe I don't have an answer to this, but I'm I'm kind of picking up that there's multiple points of view that that aren't we, we aren't quite seeing eye to eye yet so how can we have a conversation and and find something that works for our students and for us and and you've said large you've got looking into those larger social kind of ideas that are floating around us as well yeah and i think also one thing about having having that background sense of what the stages and structures and subcultures are can give you a sense of where you're gently trying to nudge people so that you can keep it consistent, but also keep it gentle. So you're not damaging the relationship and also using, having a sense of what people's values are and resonating with those values genuinely, but then using those values to nudge people beyond whatever the confines of the conversation are. Like for instance, if you, if you're at a mainstream school and the focus is on success, you're going to want to stay resonant with those values of success and academics. You're not going to want to just go against it and just try to undermine those values and make them sound wrong. But what you're actually going to want to do is that persistently, gently have some sort of reframing where some things like maybe rethinking grading or rethinking assessment or rethinking standardization, these things are framed as resonant with that value of success. This will actually help our children be more successful, more ready for 21st century challenges, more ready for the complexity of the world in front of them. So you just take that value to its logical conclusion instead of going against it. And that's what people really fail to do in a lot of mimetic and perspectival conflicts is they just go right against the values of other people, right? Because there's this value of success and there's this value of like empathy and inclusion and equality. And it's almost like the conversation happens in a way where people have to defend themselves and their values because they identify with their values and they feel like their values are being attacked. But instead, if you're relating to someone who's really oriented toward that more modern mainstream goal, just take the, how do you take those values and mature them as much as possible? And similarly for in a post-modern progressive context, if people value inclusion and people value equity, then you ask questions like, I'm wondering what perspective is being left out here, right? I'm wondering, I'm wondering if we're really empathizing with and understanding, you know, this other view that maybe was being criticized or put at a distance or put down. But actually, if you take the value of inclusion and empathy and equity to its logical conclusion, you actually need to include more than is typically included. You need to empathize more with conservatives, for instance, and even racists, for instance, than you typically do. So I think that is a really meaningful strategy and it, it can be looked at as a strategy. It can be looked at as a way of taking higher order thinking and using it to increase the complexity of other people's thinking. But it can also, you don't have to even look at it like that either. You can actually just look at it as genuinely, meaningfully connecting with those important values and like genuinely feeling like, okay, if inclusion and empathy and equity is the 
is the context of shared value in this group, how do we enrich that? How do we actually live out those values as best as we can? Because the honest truth is that most people, most of the time are not necessarily being their ideal selves or living their values perfectly. And there's always room for reflection and improvement in any group, in any school. We're kind of pointing at the limits of the conventional view of kind of the idea of like success and all this stuff. We haven't talked much about the traditional view and it's still something that's definitely having a huge influence on, or I think I'm beginning to realize it's there more than we realize perhaps is one way to say it. And the kind of the duty and that sense of self-responsibility from the traditional approach. Then we've got the success and the reductionism. Then we've got the sort of the valuing of being post-conventional in the progressive view. So much of our conversation has been around this idea of ensuring that we are integrating the best and being able to kind of separate the babies in the bathwater here. What's the conversation going to be a hundred years from now when we look back on this and the post-post-progressive wave starts to come in and they go, oh, listen to those dudes just so caught up in the stage models and the, the empathy and the, the validating of other perspectives. I can't believe they didn't see what, like, is there any trickle of like where this post-progressive narrative is going next? Yeah, well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. So one is to actually answer that directly. And one is to take a sort of meta move from the question, because one thing that helps to clarify there is the difference between individual and collective again. So, and I think what's interesting is there is a way of understanding the potentials and capacities of individual development where I could make an argument that we have it mapped out pretty well. For instance, if you look at something like Buddhist psychology or you look at transpersonal psychology, you look at some of Ken Wilber's books, um, it's mapped out pretty well in terms of very advanced individual perspective taking, very advanced and evolved capacity for human awakening basically. Um, but culturally, when we're talking about things like traditional, modern, postmodern, if we're on the cusp of the emergence of something like metamodern or post-postmodern, that's not even a reality yet, right? So that's, that's what some of us are just starting to create. So we don't even really know what the shape, what the social shape and form of sort of metamodern, post-postmodern uh, world will look like that that's actually what we are imagining what we are leaning into and co-creating through conversations like this where we're, we're laying down those grooves right now so i think that the shape of that world that's unfolding will correspond to differences in economics differences in schooling differences in agriculture right like there's the, the the shape of the world is going to change so the agrarian worldview and traditional sort of thinking co-evolved, right? The industrial and the modern co-evolved, the informational and digital and postmodern co-emerged, right? So these things, so the world, the shape of the world and the shape of mind and humanity are co-evolving. So now we have this intimation of a post-postmodern worldview, but what's the post-digital? Like what's the post-digital information, economic, technological structure? that's going to hold it and that we don't actually know yet. So, so that's, that's still in the future. So to think beyond that, I mean, we'd, we'd be getting real sci-fi in terms of what the world is going to look like when we get post meta modern, but individually we can think about what are the blind spots or what are the tendencies to not enact the fullest expression of 
a metamodern worldview as an individual. And I think, so like, for instance, one thing we could point to in terms of what would be sort of like a fledgling, immature, initial way of trying to embody post, post-modernity or metamodernity, and then what would be a more mature way. Some of the things that I think we talked about last time really does have to do with being relational, being embodied, and being less explicit. Like, I think the, the, the sort of initial move that we can make, which can then later be critiqued, is this move to over-explain, this move to have things be overly developmental, overly explicit in way, because what you end up doing is you can end up setting off people's defenses. You can end up having, getting into categorizing people, which is really tricky. So my, my sense is that the more mature versions of the sort of metamodern individual will be where we more take it for granted and we more establish cultures of relationship where it really is like a growing down happening instead of just growing up and keep going more and more and more meta we actually come back to being more relational more in tune with our participatory knowing of each other um and in some ways that could be we could also explain even if you just use spiral dynamics it's a way of actually reintegrating the lower structures so like there's parts of ourselves for instance that are even pre-traditional right like our more archaic selves our our pre-modern selves like these aspects of our individual collective psyche that need to be healthfully integrated our indigenous selves right we've through modernity and through the systems of repression and oppression of the past several hundred years we have um really fragmented our development and most of us live in our heads with senses of self that are overly identified with certain kinds of thought. And we've kind of lost some connection to our body. We've lost some connection to our grounding in the earth and the planet and our biosphere. And a sort of healthy metamodern self in the world would be an integrated self in the world where we're more in our bodies, we're more connected to our biosphere. We're living maybe simpler or maybe less digital in some ways. I mean, I think the, the digital is going to continue to be the infrastructure of our reality. But in terms of our individual attention, we can actually move into a kind of maturity where we sort of reestablish a sovereignty over our attention. And our, we're not allowing our attention to be captured by the digital, right? By surveillance capitalism, which is the economic logic of the post-postmodern world that's emerging right now. So like the people who will be looking back on this hopefully have found a way to not allow their attention to be captured by digital technology. Hopefully they have found a way to actually be reintegrated with their indigenous selves and their native indigeneity that all human beings have access to. Hopefully they found a way to actually be reintegrated with a healthy relationship with the earth and the soil and food production and relationships to animals and things like factory farming hopefully become a distant memory. Like, right, all these these layers of health versus pathology, um, it's all included, like, and it's all implicated. Like, we have to change our relationship to animals, our relationship to schooling, our relationship to the earth itself. And all of these things are implied by this metamodern post-postmodern emergence, because once you start to hold that broad of a picture of what's happening, once you start to see this developmental space that people are moving through, you see all the implications of how these different worldviews relate 
to each other and to the world and to animals. And you see the harm and the pathology and the tragedy of that. So it's like you, you're empathizing with people, but also you're seeing how much better we can do. So that vision of a much more beautiful world, I think is very present for many of us in our imagination. And we're actually, we actually feel ourselves moving into an enactment and an embodiment of that more beautiful world. Um, and seeing with more and more clarity the ways in which these modern postmodern structures are inhibiting that are of the utmost importance, right? And that's that should be, again, the vision of schooling, the vision of the educational process is having this evolutionary process-oriented, you know, orientation towards self and world and culture and society, but in a way that's oriented toward healing and integration and not just linear progress, right? It's not about coming up with the next, it's not about inventing the next widget that's gonna make you a lot of money, right? It's about health and integration. And, and that's the kind of shift that I think can happen. So hopefully people are looking back and seeing, well, you know, they were starting to figure out these stages and they were starting to figure out how it's unfolding, but, you know, they weren't really holding it and embodying it and really living out the implications for the ways they need to change their systems of production and economic systems and political systems. One thing we haven't quite touched on, which I think brings together a lot of what we have talked about, is that code versus complexity idea. So I guess one of my questions, again, thinking about working with adults and kids, is how we can support ourselves and, and others when the cognitive and emotional demands of our kind of culture around us aren't quite resonating with what's inside us. And maybe we haven't, we don't even know why, maybe. Or we're just swimming in that water and we haven't even identified that there's some kind of dissonance within ourselves or something that's stopping us from, from, from fully integrating into our community and with the people around us. How can we support that when the code and complexity is different? And maybe you can explain a little bit to people who, who, who didn't listen last time. Or Yeah, thanks. So code, when we're thinking about cultural codes, that's a lot of what we've been referring to when we think about these big social categories like traditional modern, postmodern, traditional mainstream progressive. These are sort of cultural codes that have shared values and language that we share and acknowledging how influenced we are by our environments, how influenced we are by the groups that we live with, we end up using the language and ideas of that group, right? So that's just so step one is just seeing that we all are influenced in that way. And there are these distinctions that we can make in terms of patterns and habits of what values we sort of resonate with, the kind of language we use. And, you know, hopefully these distinctions between like traditional modern and postmodern is somewhat clear. So the interesting thing is when we look at individual development, what we don't want to do and what often happens is we just conflate um, or we identify the individual with whatever code they're using or whatever culture group they're a part of. So for instance, you know, those people, they are progressive or those people, they are modern, but each, because those individuals are sort of resonating and using that language and their group, but each individual is still an individual and is still processing those words and those language and those beliefs and those values individually and somewhat uniquely. So taking a more um, specific and fine-tuned understanding of complexity of individuals can be helpful. So again, we, we want to do it in a context where we're not reducing the individual to their complexity. We're not reducing them to 
how we're objectifying them in terms of a stage, but having a sense of the complexity of the stages can help. So for instance, and, and, all, and also seeing that we all kind of have a complexity bias, like we all tend to prefer forms of reasoning that correspond to our own stage of complexity, but there can still be a real difference in terms of how people are understanding their world, even if they're part of a group that's sort of resonating or, or sort of has a, a herd mentality and group think, that doesn't mean every individual has the same complexity. So for instance, the model of hierarchical complexity, which was developed by Michael Commons, um, this is one way that, that it's, it's more sort of mathematical and more clear, I think, than some of the um, more global theories of development, like Keegan and spiral dynamics. These are more global theories where you sort of have this notion of the self and the self going through stages, whereas having more domain specific sort of theories can help to really look into just something like complexity. So for instance, if you are at what we could call the abstract stage of complexity, you're able to see an abstract variable, but typically just one at a time. And you're not seeing the relationships between different abstract ideas. So you'll focus on one thing at a time. For instance, someone might be a one issue voter, right? For them, it's like low taxes, period. I'm gonna, I, that's all I can hold. I just want low taxes. But at the same, but then in a different conversation, they might say, oh yeah, I want my, I want my Medicare or Medicaid. Like, yeah, like I want my social entitlements too. But it's like, they're not really holding both of those things together. It's kind of one at a time. Like, yes, I want, I don't want to pay taxes and I want free health care. And, you know, I don't like immigration and I don't want to have to do jobs that I don't want to have to do. It's, you know, it's like, it's just one at a time. So the, there's these abstract categories and someone can focus on one thing, but they're not necessarily be able to hold them in tension. So the next stage would be maybe if you have a more formal complexity in your thinking, you're able to see some basic causal relationships, like if-then thinking. So it's like, well, if we raise taxes or if we raise the taxes, then maybe we can actually have more money for some of the things I want, like free healthcare, right? So it's like, hmm, I have to, able, have to be able to hold these things in relationship to each other. So that's one distinction, right? Like, which you see playing out in, in society. And, but if you have that sort of if-then linear thinking, you tend to be someone who follows linear plans You'll tend to be someone who follows the rules of others because you can see that those rules make sense, but you're not necessarily creating your own novel creative rules. And you're not really still going to have a whole coherent system of thought that holds multiple things together simultaneously, right? You're going to just kind of go along with, yes, well, now I'm going to actually res the Democrat because I can see that if we do this, then this can happen. And those people over there, they're not making any sense. They're not following the same logic that my group is following, right? So that's another sort of stage of complexity, which we could call formal, formal thinking. The next stage would be systematic. So here we're able to coordinate more rules and see how they relate in a larger system. Um, so this is when we get, so, I, and I would say that abstract view, we could associate roughly with the traditional, but we shouldn't conflate them. The formal sort of if then we could associate with the modern or mainstream, but we still shouldn't conflate them. And then the systematic, we can see emerging in sort of more postmodern culture where we're trying to understand systems, right? So trying to understand economics and like all the complexity of economics and capitalism, right? So maybe we create, we start to understand how capitalism influences things and we start to create a critique of capitalism, right? You can see that in the sort of postmodern progressive culture or systemic racism, right? We can start to see how there's so many ways in which racism manifests in society 
and there's this sort of system of relationships and you're just starting to get a sense of like how it makes sense to hold all those things together and see them as a system. Or maybe you see Darwinian evolution, right? And you think, okay, I can sort of understand this, this complex sort of worldview of how evolution happens, but it's still just within the Darwinian frame. So that would be an example of systematic where you can see the world through a system of explanation, which is more than just like if then thinking, but you still tend to reduce everything to that system, right? So if, you're, if your thing is understanding economics and capitalism, you might end up reducing everything to, oh, that's capitalism. Capitalism is bad. Or, or the same with racism. Like, oh, well, everything's racist. There's, you know, I, I can see racism everywhere. Or evolution. I can explain everything through Darwinian evolution and the struggle for survival. And the thing is, you, even just pointing it out in that way, you can see, well, actually, none of those systems of explanation can hold the whole thing. They're all still partial, right? So the move we really need to be making is the move to metasystematic. So this would be indicative of the emergence of a metamodern culture or a post-postmodern culture is creating the conditions for the emergence of more people to hold metasystematic perspectives. And that would mean being able to compare the properties of different systems and how they relate to each other. So if I want to understand humanity, if I want to understand the social world, I have to understand capitalism, biological evolution, racism psychological development, right? Some, some sense of history and anthropology, like it all has to fit together somehow. And it's all creating this sort of metasystematic whole that then opens up a space where I can see that it's also all growing and changing and in a dynamic relationship. So that would be one sort of breakdown of like the four really most dominant stages, which do, again, like you can see that there's this relationship between individuals sort of growing into these different kinds of complexity and through more and more people doing that sort of shared worldviews um, emerging and then that changing the shape of the world and then vice versa, the shape of the world influencing individuals. So you can see this progression from traditional, modern, postmodern, metamodern in these distinctions from seeing one variable at a time, seeing sort of if-then linear relationships, seeing systemic relationships, and then seeing metasystematic relationships. So the thing is, so that's the sort of individual complex, one way of thinking about the, the development of individual complexity and perspective taking. So the thing is, you can be a abstract thinker or a formal thinker who's really only focusing on one variable at a time or really only seeing linear relationships, but you can grow up in a postmodern progressive culture where you're getting a lot of the language of systemic racism and the problems of capitalism but you're not really holding the complexity of understanding the view that would actually create those criticisms and create the insights that allow us to take those things as social objects that we can then transcend. Does that make sense? That's a, that's a great answer. It gives us a lot of context. Of course, it sets up the next conversation. <laughs> you know, that's where we're going in the next hour in part three. Conversations like this don't necessarily happen a lot. And I really appreciate the space between the three of us who seem vividly interested in exploring these ideas to create some new grooves and like eke out some of the next thinking. And maybe just more humbly, it's fun to just step back and try to take a bigger perspective on what we're doing in schools, what we're doing in our own lives, 
what we're doing in our relationships, in our households, these sorts of things. And to see, like I think Brad said at the start, just how we are, a huge part of us is a result of the environment and these massive, huge systemic things and historical things and cultural influences and all this. I think this has been great for me to just be in this space with you guys and hopefully take a bit of this into my week and month and and forward. So thank you guys. Yeah, thank you. I was just going to add one thing. I, I totally agree with that. It's fantastic um, to have this opportunity, and I hope we get a chance again soon. Last time you spoke, Brad, you talked about uh, a book that you had coming out soon. I wondered if you wanted to give us any kind of an overview of what that might be about or if it connects to our conversation today. Yeah, thanks so much for asking. I appreciate that. And actually, I'm excited. I just got the proof of the cover uh, two days ago, uh, which I've been sharing. So it's it should be out in December and it's called Understanding Educational Complexity. And it's very, very relevant to our conversation here. And I think it will actually be really helpful for people who are interested in these things because what I do is I do, I base it in two case studies. So I actually... I, I sort of introduce sort of the context of the complexity of education. And then I have a chapter where I talk about complex systems a little bit and how to understand schools as complex systems. And then I go through two case studies. So like 20 to 30 pages, just really looking at one school and a principal at a school and going through and trying to understand the relationships and what's happening at those schools through the lens of complexity. But then that's the first half of the book. And the second half of the book is a reflection on that research and on what I learned at those schools that also includes developmental psychology. So I try to make sense of what perspectives were these school leaders coming from? What were the dominant perspectives of these schools? And how does that really help us explain what happened at these schools? And then I also bring in the economic piece too. And I'm basically making the argument that no matter how much time you spend in a school, no matter how closely, no matter how fine-grained your research is, you can't understand what's happening in a school if you don't understand the social forces that are influencing that school economically and also the mimetic forces that are influencing people through their own psychology, right? So I'm, I'm making the argument for an integral approach to understanding what's happening in schools that brings in the, the, these larger social forces, that brings in developmental psychology to really help us really understand what's going on. Um, and then I do a little reflection on myself, too, because I was also a school leader at that time. And I kind of compare, well, this is how these principals were thinking about things. I was in a similar context. This is how I was thinking about things. And this is how we can understand these differences in perspective in a way that hopefully point us toward understanding what would be the most helpful ways to engage the complexity of, of life in school. So, yeah, thanks. I, I hope that it, is, it, it, that it is a meaningful and helpful book. And I really try to bring together the concrete and the case study and the lived reality of schools. So it's not just abstract, but also bringing in very abstract meta theory to help us understand that concrete reality. Kudos to you for tying yeah. those together. And certainly when that is released, we'd be thrilled to check in with you then. And of course, anytime between now and then as well. I think each time we chat, this feels like a Star Wars trilogy or something where it's like, oh, clearly they're giving hints that there could be more for this conversation. So Brad, anytime you're up for it, I'm sure there's several threads when we go back and listen to this that we'd like to follow up on again cool. with you. Yeah, let me know. Let me know. And if in, in maybe in the early 
2021, um, we could do that. And we could, if, if you were interested, we could dive more into the book or any direction mm-hmm. you want to take. There's oh, that'd be great. Stuff. Yeah. And I do want to say, I really, I really do agree with you, Rob. I think these conversations are really valuable and meaningful. And they're, I think being exposed to conversations like this can be really helpful for people is what I'm hoping, because it also just loosens up. I hope that point part of the purpose of these kinds of conversations is to loosen up our sense of self, right? And to actually like we're often, we're so often, we just take ourselves for granted. We take our perspective for granted. But if we, when we start to get exposed to what different perspectives there are, it can just kind of loosen up our self-contraction and that can open up space for our own growth and emergence into what is possible and potential for us. And all of us are on that journey. All of us have a potential and a possibility that is more than what we are currently experiencing and we have to find ways to stay loose and stay open to those possibilities um so i hope that conversations like this are facilitating that for us too thank you very much robert brad awesome good night i guess i'll i'll get started with my day here and i wish you sweet dreams thanks very much guys excellent 